Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs of you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. On the 12th of November, 2023, a Lancaster pastor preached a sermon in which he appealed to a 2,000-year-old text written by a dead white man to tell women that they should submit to their husbands. He also included comments on what they should and shouldn't wear. The police investigation continues. Hopefully we won't end up there, but I think that is a worryingly plausible story in our society, isn't it? It's worrying to me, maybe you're not worried. Uh, there is something profoundly countercultural and strange to what we've just read and to what we're doing here. In an age where marriage is considered little more than a lifestyle choice, where we have very firm views on the equality of men and women, and where every individual has the absolute right to decide for themselves how to live, this teaching, what we just read in 1 Peter 3, can seem jarring and weird and pretty offensive. We'd be tempted to write this off as ancient misogyny, an attempt to control women and subjugate them and remove their agency and their dignity. But if we give our time and attention to this text this morning to see what it doesn't say as well as what it does and to read it through the lens of the good news of Jesus Christ, I think we'll end uh, this morning having a different reaction. In fact, I hope and pray and expect that whoever you are, this passage will be for you wonderfully liberating and beautiful. For a start, I think we'll see that the reason we believe that women have equal agency and dignity to men is precisely because of the teaching of this passage. But even more than that, whether you are happily or unhappily married, whether your spouse is a Christian or not, whether you are happily or unhappily single, whether you're engaged to be married or thinking about it quite seriously, whether you are separated, divorced, widowed or too young to be thinking about any of that yet, we are going to learn something here about what it means to be truly human in a messed up world and we're going to be pointed to the grace and goodness of Jesus. Let me pray that would be the case then we're going to dive in. Father as we come to this text please help us to hear it well, to understand it and by your spirit to grasp its truth and its beauty. And please help us see Jesus and live for him as a result of what we do here this morning. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's dive in then. There's a notice sheet note. There's an outline on the inside of your notice sheets. And we're going to begin with our first point, wordless winning. Wordless winning. You'll have noticed as the passage was read that the majority of it is addressed to the married women in the churches that Peter is writing to with a particular application to those who are married to non-Christian husbands. And it's worth us pausing on that and pausing on that very first word of the passage. Peter starts 3 verse 1, wives. Peter addresses wives directly. In the previous passage, he addressed slaves directly. Now, we might not think anything of that. We might think that's completely normal and not weird at all. But in his context, in the Roman world he lived in, this is absolutely revolutionary. We do actually have teaching from Roman and Greek authors about the proper behavior of slaves and wives, but that teaching was addressed to masters and to men. In Roman thought, slaves and wives were second-order citizens at best. If they needed telling something, they were told it by their superiors. But Peter will not have that. He does not tell husbands to make their wives submit. If you're a husband, your teaching comes in verse 7, not in verses 1 to 6. Instead, he addresses wives directly. Indeed, in this letter, Peter spends most of the time speaking to those people who did not hold the positions of power and authority and influence in the world. He speaks to those instead who in this society had very little power and influence. There is teaching elsewhere in the Bible for the rich, for rulers, for masters. It's not that you have to be poor to be a Christian, but it is not surprising that the message of Jesus came across as particularly good news for the poor. Last week we were thinking about that message of Jesus. Read with me again from chapter 2, verse 21. We'll see the context for our chapter today. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. See, when Christ came, even though he did have power and influence and authority, even though he was and is God's all-conquering king, he came in weakness and in silent suffering. He was insulted and oppressed and poor. And he did that not because that way of life is better than the alternative, but because of his mission. He came to bear the guilt and shame that we deserve because of our sin. He came to be humbled to death on a cross. And so that pattern, that suffering now can mean glory later, that walking in humility can mean walking in the footsteps of God himself, means that those who are nobodies in the eyes of the world, who are in lowly positions and who even suffer unjustly, are counted somebodies in the eyes of God through Christ. Their pattern of life is invested with dignity as they imitate their saviour. And they can look forward to honour and glory in the life to come. And so the local church walking in imitation of Jesus is likely to look weak in the eyes of the world. It is likely to be filled with nobodies. Hello, everyone. 
As 1 Corinthians 1 puts it, God delights to choose the weak things of this world in order to shame the strong. And so it's perhaps not surprising in this culture that women might come to Jesus before their husbands did. The message of Jesus is always challenging. It it always demands a 180-degree change of mind and a change of life. A conversion is always a miracle of the Spirit, but it is perhaps particularly difficult for the strong and the powerful to accept the message that they are not in charge, that it is Jesus, not them, who rules the universe, and that the way to approval with God is humility and repentance. And that's what's happened here. We'll come to what submission actually looks like a bit later and what Peter is actually calling wives to, but notice that Peter calls believing wives to be submissive to their husbands with a particular goal in mind. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the words, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. The goal is the winning over of the, believing, the unbelieving husband. Peter is hoping and praying, along with these women, that their husbands will come to know Jesus, they'll have their sins forgiven and their relationship with God restored so that they can have, as he puts it in chapter 1, new birth into a living hope, the inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, that Michael's helped us think about already this morning. But how's that going to happen? Well, Peter says it'll happen, verse 1, without words. Now, on the face of it, that seems fairly surprising, doesn't it? After all, Peter has been very, very clear that the word of God, the message of the gospel, is necessary for salvation. Back in chapter 1, verse 12, he said that the reason his hearers had been saved is because people preached the gospel to them. The gospel which was prophesied in the Old Testament by words and proclaimed by the apostles in the New Testament by words. He is called the word of God, 123, the imperishable seed which brings new life, the living and enduring message. Peter clearly believes that salvation comes through words, through speaking and through hearing. And so we need to see that it's also clear that these men have already heard this word themselves. 3 verse 1, they do not believe the word. More literally, they are not obeying it. They do know the gospel, they have heard it, it's just they don't credit it. So in that situation, what is the strategy? We might think the believing wife would be urged to tell her husband the gospel. After all, he is a captive audience and a wife has ways and means of getting a message across to her husband if she needs to. There are times, would you believe, when I am told something by my wife and I don't really listen It's just hard to imagine, isn't it? Uh, Sometimes she goes out and I'm in my study and she asked me to put the washing out when the machine stops or something. I wasn't listening. (laughs) And I say, yeah, 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 okay. When really I'm thinking about a sermon or an interesting book I've read or I've seen a bird. And, um, And she knows, she knows that. And so she has developed a really rather impressive array of techniques at her disposal to drive that message home. Notes are left around the house strategically placed alarms go off at random intervals. (laughs) Texts and emails come in. And if, after all, I've still forgotten, I am made aware of this fact when I came home. 
Uh, well, to be absolutely clear, I am completely exaggerating massively. Sean is not uh, a nagging wife, but I'm, uh, I'm if anything, under-emphasizing uh, my own uselessness. I am that bad. Anyway, um, why not advocate that as a strategy? You share your life, your home, and your bed with this man. Give him the gospel. Come on, girls, both barrels, morning, noon, and night. Uh, leave notes, sing songs, read the Bible at him until you wear him down. Why not? Well, apart from that being, just from a human perspective, massively counterproductive, I think the reason is this, that it is not the way of Christ. Peter, back in 2 verse 12, has given us his mission strategy. Look at it with me again, 2 verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The church is the people of God, the holy nation, the community who are starting to live life the way God intended it to be lived. Their call is to live the good life, a life which honors God in view of others. And that way of life, the distinctive, different way of life, what Peter calls the purity and reverence of your lives in verse 2, is what will promote the good news of Jesus and provoke the question, why are you like this? Why are you different? What's changed since you started going to church? As Paul says in Titus, good works adorn the gospel. They make the news which is good look good. They make the claim of the gospel plausible. Now, not every person is going to respond well to that. Some might accuse us of evil, even as we do what is good. But we do not respond to lack of belief in the gospel by trying to beat the world at its own game with manipulation or intimidation or power plays. Instead, we follow Christ's example and entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. We speak the gospel where we have opportunity. As we're going to see, we answer the question why with clarity and faithfulness, but we, and we do what is good, and we trust God for the result. What is the right way to live for married women? What adornment best befits the gospel? Let's see that in the next couple of verses as we consider what is of imperishable worth. Let's read verse 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to put, a, put those same verses on the screen in a slightly more literal translation. It'll be a bit harder to read, but I think it'll help us work out what Peter's talking about here. So here are they on the screen. Um, do not let your adornment be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold, the wearing of clothes. But let your adornment be the inner person of the heart with the imperishable thing of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, I've put those on the screen because you'll notice that the, the word beauty doesn't actually appear in Peter's original Greek sentence. It doesn't appear in this passage at all. It's not a bad translation because adornments are about beauty. But the focus of the word beauty might make us take the application of this verse a bit too narrowly. I'll show you what I mean. Peter, in these two verses here, compares and contrasts not so much two different kinds of beauty, but two different kinds of adornment. What is an adornment? The simplest definition I can come up with is this. It's something you put on which other people notice. Something you put on 
which other people notice, which draws their attention. I was at a conference this week with other pastors. I was wearing my flat cap, as I want to do. Uh, and a Scottish pastor friend of mine said, oh, I love the cap, you're turning into a Scotsman. And I very firmly told him that flat caps were invented in Lancashire. I thank you very much. <laughs> I don't actually know if that's true. It just... I looked up at Abbots, and it is true, it is North England. I'm not giving any credit to Yorkshire, so we'll call it Lancashire, shall we? Um, anyway, my, that was, sorry. my cap is an adornment. It's something I put on which other people notice, whether I like it or not. Adornments are not bad things in and of themselves. We all have adornments on this morning. But Peter is going to compare and contrast two different kinds of adornment in verse 3 and verse 4. And we'll see what kind of adornment he is encouraging wives to be focusing on. So briefly, let's compare those two adornments. In verse 3, he's talking about external adornments. Fancy hairdo, gold jewellery, nice clothes, something that happens on the outside. In verse 4, he's talking about an internal adornment. An attitude of the inner person of the heart, something that happens on the inside, external, internal. In verse 3, he's talking about adornments which don't last. Hair, yes, I am living proof of that. Jewelry, clothing, these things have a tendency to fade, to break, to go missing, to wear out. In verse 4, do you see he's talking about something imperishable? He's using a word there that he's used twice before in this letter, once in 1 verse 4 to describe the imperishable inheritance that Christians have stored up for them in heaven, and once in 1 verse 23 to describe the imperishable, eternal word of God. So we've got external versus internal, perishable versus imperishable, and verse 3, these are adornments which are valuable in the sight of people. Expensive and costly jewellery and clothing and hair treatments, verse 4. and Sorry, verse 3, verse 4. An adornment which is valuable in the sight of God. Very precious to him. External, internal, perishable, imperishable. Precious in the sight of people. Precious in the sight of God. And so what are these adornments? What is Peter saying yes to and what is he saying no to? It's actually not quite as straightforward to see what Peter is saying no to in verse 3 because none of the things that he mentions are bad in and of themselves. We know that from the rest of the Bible. Obviously, wearing clothes, as the Greek literally says, is better than the alternative. And physical adornments, jewelry, beautiful clothes, lovely hairstyles, are presented quite positively in other parts of the Bible. It is not wrong, per se, to notice, appreciate, and adorn feminine beauty, nor indeed masculine beauty. The lover in the Song of Songs praises the earrings and necklace of his beautiful bride, as well as her face and figure, and indeed her friends offer to make her gold earrings to make her even more attractive to him. Jacob makes a beautiful robe for his son Joseph. Ruth puts on perfume to meet with Boaz. The ideal wife in Proverbs 31, good passage to read, by the way, as you reflect on this, wears rich clothes of purple cloth. God in Ezekiel 16, in his parable of Israel as his beautiful bride, dresses her in fine linen and bracelets and a nose ring. And in Revelation 21, the church is likened to a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. God invented beauty. He invented feminine beauty and masculine beauty. It's not wrong to celebrate and enjoy it and adorn it. These things are not bad, and these things are not banned. So what's the problem? What is Peter saying no to? 
I think it's easy to see it by contrast to what he says yes to in verse 4, because Peter spells it out for us. He says the the adornment to aim for, what you really want to put on, is a gentle and quiet spirit. Now again, we must be careful not to misread that. A gentle and quiet spirit is not the same thing at all as a timid and spineless personality. Peter is not saying to Christian wives that they must be church mice or wallflowers or doormats. How do we know? Because we've already met someone in 1 Peter with a gentle and quiet spirit, and that is the Lord Almighty, the God of all, Jesus Christ. We've seen it in verse 22 to 24, haven't we? Christ was not timid. He was not fearful, but he was quietly determined to do the right thing, to act with gentleness and to trust God. Just cast your eyes up again to verse 22 to 24 and see it. Jesus is here suffering unjustly. He has done the right thing. He's a good man, and yet he is being treated as an evildoer for God's sake by the authorities over him. What could he have done in those moments? Well, he could have lashed out, couldn't he? He could have retaliated. He could have threatened. He could have used all the weapons of the world to rebel against the unjust authority, to take them down, to silence those who are mocking him. He had the power to do that, certainly. He could have risen up and smashed the Sanhedrin and crushed Pilate and overthrown Herod and been like every other ruler in this world, succeeding by might and strength and glory. And it probably would have worked and it probably would have gained quite a following for a time but that would not have been the will of his father. He submitted to the greater good authority of God by submitting to the lesser not good authority of men. At that moment, he was quiet and gentle. He submitted to authority and trusted God, even though that meant suffering for him, because at that point, the alternative would have been to sin and to deny his father. He didn't speak up to get his own good At others' expense, he stayed quiet and lived for their good at his expense. And that is what wives are called to here. Not the adoption of a timid and fretful personality, but the cultivation of a gentle and quiet character. That same character, by the way, is going to characterize husbands in 3 verse 7 and the whole church in 3 verse 15. It is the Christ-like, humble character that trusts God, even if it means accepting suffering as we walk in obedience to him, and that seeks your good at my expense. And so as the wife of the unbelieving husband lives like Jesus, she points to Jesus. That's the adornment that Peter is saying yes to, the putting on of Christ, the spirit-fueled, internal, transformed character, which Peter says is imperishable. This is an adornment which will last forever, which is a foretaste of the new creation, which has the same rich, eternal quality of the word of God itself. And so this is an adornment which will be noticed by their husband and others, such that it makes the good news he has heard plausible and beautiful. And so that helps us understand what Peter is saying no to. He's not saying that a woman or a man can't ever pay attention to what they wear or that a wife cannot dress in a way which enhances feminine beauty. You don't have to turn up to church wearing a burlap sack and a veil. 
What he is saying is that there is an attitude to external adornments which doesn't say, look at Jesus, but does say, look at me. We do, why do we spend time and money and attention on external adornments? If you're thinking, is he really going to mansplain to us why women wear lipstick, then yes, we are going there. Why do we do it? There are all sorts of reasons, aren't there? And there's some very, very good reasons, but some, if we're honest, are about self-promotion that says, look at me rather than look at Jesus. There is a way of dressing which draws attention to our bodies in a way that says, I am sexually available, look at me. There is a way of adorning ourselves with expensive items which says to others, I have a lot of money to spend, look at me. There is an attitude to our external adornment which is designed to communicate, I am winning at life, look at me. It's the entire business model of Instagram, isn't it? Look at me, and girls, if you look like me, others will look, look at you too. Well, can I tell you something? That way of life, the look at me life, will make you proud, and then fearful, and then anxious, and then miserable. The look at me life will enslave you. It'll make you spend your youth in a race to meet an impossible standard of beauty, and then it will leave you empty and bitter when you get older, and your external beauty fades away. By contrast, if we give our time and attention to cultivating a Christ-like character, we can have a different, richer, better way of life, a look at Jesus way of life, which is imperishable, purposeful, beautiful, and increasingly beautiful as you get older, and wonderfully free. Here is what Proverbs 31 verse 30 says, Charm is deceptive, and beauty is fleeting but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. What, is all, what does this all actually look like in practice? That's our next point. It looks like courageous submission. Peter takes us not to a set of instructions, but to an example. Read it with me. 3 verse 5. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. So here, of course, is where the passage gets really controversial. Peter points to Sarah, who adorned herself in this way with submission, verse 5, and obedience, verse 6, to her husband. Now, if you've been with us for this series, you'll have seen that submission and obedience are not dirty words. All of us submit and obey because all of us are under authority, and that's the proper response to authority. We submit to God and obey his gospel. Jesus himself submitted to authority and obeyed his father. Slaves are called to submit to their masters, employees to their employers, citizens to their governors, and all of us, verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13, to submit ourselves to every human authority. As natural rebels against God, we tend to respond to authority with annoyance and irritation. We chafe under it, don't we? We don't like being told what to do. We'd rather be kings and queens of our own little domains. Thank you very much. But if Christ the Lord is king and God is our creator and ruler, then at the heart of the gospel is taking off our crowns and casting them at the feet of Jesus and submitting to the authorities that he has put above us. It's repenting, submitting, 
trusting. And here, Peter points to the institution of marriage and says that God has designed it to have an authority structure within it. By design, the husband is called to lead his wife, to lead the household. Now, we'll see in verse 7, there is a very particular shape to that leading. But if the husband leads, the wife is called to submit to that leadership. We'll talk in a minute about what that means, what that looks like, why it's hard, and what the limits to those submissions are in a moment. But for now, notice with me the reason Peter gives for that submission. There is one reason given, and one reason only. It comes about, verse 5, because of hope in God. Sarah, Abraham's wife, hoped in God. She trusted in him. She put her faith in him. She reckoned that God's way of doing things was right because he's God. She reasoned that he knew best, not her. She entrusted herself to the one who judges justly. That's the reason for submission. And I think it's the only reason. The author Tom Schreiner helpfully comments that that means that the wife doesn't submit for the following reasons. To satisfy her husband's vanity to promote his reputation, to show everybody else how godly they are, to avoid conflict in the home, to impress their neighbors, to manipulate their husbands, or because they think their husband is particularly wise. All of those reasons for submission are either self-focused or husband-focused. Peter promotes a God-focused submission. Submit to authority because it's the good and blessed design of God. It's the way he set up marriage to flourish. It's a rejoicing in God's pattern for humanity, not a rebelling against it. But what does it actually look like? What does it mean in practice? Interestingly, Peter doesn't really spell it out. It's clearly a very different situation to a child obeying its parents or a slave his master, they are different kinds of submission and obedience. The, the in the same way of chapter 3 verse 1 isn't referring, I think, to the submission of slaves to master. It's not saying the same way a slave submits to a master, no. For a start in verse 7, husbands are called to do something in the same way as well. I think it refers back actually to verse 17 and the, the call that the, everyone has the same obligation to show the proper respect for everyone, to love the brotherhood of uh, believers to, to, to fear God and this is what it looks like for all those different groups and that's what the in the same way is doing it's not about it's not in the same way as the submission of slaves to masters they're not the same thing they don't have the same shape Peter seems to leave it for husbands and wives to sort of work out within their own marriages what it looks like on a day-to-day -day level as the other New Testament writers do and I wonder if that's that's because it's not so much about specific behaviors, but about a particular attitude. That's what we get when we consider the example of Sarah. Abraham, you'll remember, was called to leave his home and go to the promised land, and Sarah submitted to that decision, went with him, supported him. But Peter is actually pointing to a specific moment in Sarah's life. He says that Sarah calls Abraham her master. And we only have one recorded instance of her doing that. It's in Genesis 18, when the angel of the Lord visits Abraham and Sarah and promises them that in their old age they'll have a son. Let's read what happens. It's on the screen. <clears throat> Genesis 18, starting at verse 10. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, 
and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? That's it. That's the only context in which Sarah calls Abraham her master. But what a revealing context. She is not bowing to Abraham and calling him master because he's asked her to do something. She's not calling uh, him master in the hearing of anyone else to try and impress them as far as she knows. Instead, she's, she's sort of talking to herself. Sarah and Abraham's marriage was not a straightforward one. Sometimes Abraham told Sarah to do things which she shouldn't have done, and three times at least Sarah told Abraham to do things which he shouldn't have done, and he obeyed her. Even in this passage, she is actually struggling to put her hope in God and his promise, isn't she? But do you notice something? That in her heart, in her inner spirit, while no one else is watching, at least as far as she knows, she respects her husband. She respected Abraham. She regarded him as her God-given head, as the leader in their marriage. And that was still the case when no one was watching. She hoped in God. She believed that God knew best. Although Abraham wasn't always the wisest husband, she respected her husband's leadership for God's sake. But of course, whatever that looks like in marriage, it's still very, very hard. It's hard in our own context because our society equates submission with subjugation. That if I submit to you, that must surely imply that I am inferior to you. Of course, the example of Jesus tells us that can't be true. He submitted, but he is superior to all. But it's still hard. It would be hard for these women, particularly, to submit to a husband who did not have their best spiritual interests at heart. It's hard to submit to a husband who is not very wise or not very kind. A wife in that situation might, like we saw last week, do the right thing and yet suffer for it. Now, I should make something very, very clear at this point. As we saw last week, there are clearly limits to that submission. A wife must not obey their husband if to do so would be to disobey God. We actually see it in this situation. The wife must hold on to Jesus even if her husband wants her to abandon her newfound faith and return to the worship of pagan gods. And the other thing to say very, very clearly is that submission to authority does not mean putting up with abuse. If a woman is suffering violence or degradation at the hands of an abusive husband, the Bible does not say to you, stay in the house and don't tell anyone. In that situation, the best thing to do is to speak up, to get help, and to get somewhere safe. We see throughout the Bible that abusive authority is called out and harshly judged by God. It is never acceptable. But even if things don't get to that level, Peter knows that this is a potentially hard and very scary thing to do. It will involve suffering for doing good. And so he calls these wives, at the end of verse 6, not to give way to fear. What fear is he talking about? Although I think there are all sorts of fears in that situation, aren't there? What if my husband never becomes a Christian? What if he leaves me because I'm a Christian? 
What if he leads me badly and he's not very wise and life is frustrating and annoying? What if my marriage is unhappy? What if he's rude or mocking or insulting because of my faith? What if things turn abusive and I have to leave him? What if everyone else thinks I'm crazy? To those fears and more beside, Peter counsels courage. He says, verse 6, you are a child of Sarah. That means that you are in the line of promise. You are heirs. You are a sister of Jesus himself. You are a daughter of God. You're an heir of the new creation. Put your hope in God to vindicate the Christ-like way of life in the end. Don't put your hope in your external adornment, your looks, your reputation. Don't make the goal of your life to get other people's attention. Don't set your ultimate hope on a happy marriage or even the conversion of your husband. Look forward, as it says in verse 12, to the day that God visits us. He will come one day soon. He will make everything right. And so walk the path that Jesus has walked before you with courage. Finally, a word to husbands. Look at verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Here's something interesting. I think it's interesting. We have probably found the first six verses of this passage quite controversial and uncomfortable, but this verse probably sits with us quite easily. Of course, husbands should be considerate and kind and gentle and, and treat their wives with respect. But we remember that whatever context the gospel, gospel speaks into, it will always be countercultural. In its original context, it's this verse which, have, which will have landed like an absolute bombshell. Again, in Roman thought, might was right, strength was goodness, weakness was failure. Men were the heirs, heirs and wives were their property. But see how the gospel turns everything upside down, or rather, puts it back right side up. Women are here described as the weaker partner. Now, let's be absolutely clear. That is not morally weaker, spiritually weaker, emotionally weaker, or intellectually weaker. I think it's just about who can do the most press-ups. I mean, don't test me on that. But generally speaking, men are significantly physically stronger than women. By the way, boys, you need to know that, that you are going to be physically stronger than girls. And listen to this, okay? How are you going to use that strength? It is always tempting to use strength to get your own way, to dominate others and to make them give you respect. And a man could do that with his wife. But here Peter calls husbands to use their strength differently, to use it for gentleness, to treat their wives not with disdain because they're weaker, but with honor because they're weaker. To be, in other words, like God, like Christ. The Father God who, as Psalm 103 puts it, knows that we are dust, knows that we are frail, and therefore has compassion upon us and acts to bring us from death to life, from frailty to strength, from weakness to glory. The Christ who was himself weak and yet is worthy of all glory and honor. That same gentle spirit which Peter calls for in wives, he calls for in husbands too because it's the spirit of Christ. 
And that means that their their husbands must treat their wives, verse 7, as co-heirs. This is why we believe in the equality of the sexes in a country steeped in Christian teaching, because the gospel tells us that we are equally made in the image of God and equally sharers in the inheritance of Jesus. Now that proves to us, doesn't it, that submission is not the same as inferiority because even as husband and wife have asymmetrical roles in marriage, they're still co-heirs in Christ as Christian slaves are with Christian masters, as Christian children are with Christian parents, as Christian citizens are with Christian governors. And so husbands must treat their wives considerately, as it says in our translation, or more accurately, according to knowledge. And I think that isn't referring to knowledge of your wife per se, although that that always helps, gentlemen, but knowledge of the gospel, knowledge of who their wife really is in the Lord, a precious child of God, a daughter of Sarah made made in his image with an imperishable inheritance to look forward to. Peter says, therefore, men, as you lead, go gently, lead like Christ. And men should do that, says Peter, so that their prayers are not hindered. In other words, your relationship with the Lord and your relationship with your wife are intimately linked. If you consistently treat your wife with disdain, then your household will be a place of contention and strife rather than an environment conducive to prayer. That's one way your prayers will be hindered. There are more. If you are praying for your wife to make progress with the Lord or praying for her to submit to your leadership or even praying for her to become a Christian, it is possible that this verse refers to uh, believing husbands with unbelieving wives, but I don't think it's limited to that. If you're praying for that and yet you are daily disrespecting her and making her life miserable, can God answer that prayer? Well, yeah, but you're making it really hard. Humanly speaking, that's a much harder prayer to answer. And it could be here that Peter is offering a warning, that if you claim the name of Jesus for yourself and yet you are persistently and unrepentantly mistreating one of his daughters, then you will find his face is actually turned away from you in the end. Your relationship with the Lord and your relationship with a wife are intimately linked. Go gently, lead gently, lead like Christ. Let me conclude with this thought. I want you to imagine what it would look like if husband and wives put this into practice. If a Christian church put this into practice. If men and women, boys and girls, married and unmarried, widowed and divorced, uh, cultivate this character of gentleness and humility, of submission and kindness, if we live this out in whatever role God has called us to live in at the moment... What will we be doing? We'll be walking in the way of Christ. As we proclaim the gospel, we'll be making that proclamation plausible and beautiful. We'll be living the free and good life. And we'll be giving glory and honor to our Father God's, which will be vindicated on the last day when he comes to visit us. What a wonderful, beautiful way of life we're called to. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, there's uh, many people in this room, many, many different situations. Father, we pray that whatever we are, whoever we are, 
that you would help us to accept and believe and live out this teaching. Help us to be people who put our hope in you, that trust you and walk in your ways and look forward to that future vindication, whatever it means now. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would cultivate that Christ-like character that helps us submit to authority. I pray that uh, wives in this room would be able to submit to their husbands gladly and joyfully. I pray that husbands would be able to lead their wives with gentleness and grace. And we pray that in all these things, uh, you would help us adorn the gospel of Jesus to show that the good news, which is beautiful, looks beautiful. And through all that, Father, would you bring many to put their trust in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.